Podcasting from 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, it's the IGN Digigods. And now, please welcome two men who think fish are friends, not food, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Thank you, Corey. Who sent that in? That was written by Kevin Loa. This is my Australian accent. What do you think? Don't answer that. Yeah. Because wallabies and stuff. Well, anyway. Uh, what was that music, Wade? Mark, that music was in tribute to uh, someone who has dearly departed us. And uh, as much of a critic as I have been of his over the years, um, it's heartbreaking. It I is. was very, very upset. He yeah. was my guy. He was my, I'm telling you, in 19, look, in 1981, when he, he did this movie with uh, Michael King called The Hand. Yeah. It was a horror film. It was Oliver Stone's first film as a director. And Oliver the Stone Hand. has a cameo in it. Yeah. And he has a cameo in it. James Horner did the music. And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, I like the music for this thing. Then he did Wolfen with Albert yeah. Finney, another film I like. Who's this guy, James Horner? I'm right. like, I'm like three years old. I have, what do I know about film music except for, uh, except for John Williams and Star Wars? Yeah. Then Star Trek Two, yeah. all changed, and I was just so hooked on that guy. I would see a movie just because he did the music. And then, by the way, he did. Then he did Forty Eight Hours. What we what we just played was Brainstorm, which is one. Of, you know, I've always been a critic of his, but I I love Brainstorm. I love Forty Eight Hours. I love Braveheart. I love the Lost, the the New World. Um, I, I loved Iris, you know, which is one of his scores that nobody pays attention to. Um, so he, you know, it, it's just nobody should go that way. That's just what a horrible way to go. It's, you know, I I, I kept staring at the headline that said James Horner dies in yeah. playing. I'm like, I, I still couldn't believe it. I mean, literally, movies like The Dresser or Gorky Park. Yeah. I mean, I would see those movies because he scored them. Yeah. They're they're movies that like a teenager should not want to go see Gorky Park. I uh, and. Oh, the Stone Boy! I, I remember the Stone Boy. The Stone Boy with Robert Duvall. Yeah. I mean, like I'm like whatever, 13 years old. Why do I want to go see the Stone Boy? One reason, because James Horner did the music. He he actually scored. He I, I believe he did he he scored like three or four Best Picture winners. Oh yeah, three: Titanic, three. A Beautiful Mind, and Braveheart. Yeah. I mean, it's which is you know that you, you don't find a lot of people who've scored that many Best Picture winners. That's true. You just don't. And by the way, when when Titanic came out, I was so excited. Horner was doing the score for Titanic, yeah. and in the end, I didn't like the score that much. Yeah. And I hated well. that stupid song. I'm sorry, James Horner. You know how much I love you. I I, I collected yeah. your soundtracks. I, I I literally, when Star Trek II came out, came on the Z Channel. Mm-hmm. Dearly departed, paid cable network, the Z Channel from the yep, '80s. Sure. I took a cassette recorder. And I, not a VHS machine, a cassette recorder. Yep. And I recorded the whole movie on a cassette recorder so that I can listen back to all the cues that didn't make the soundtrack album, wow. which I already owned. Yeah. So I was very, very upset. It just it's, really sucks. It's distressing. Uh, you know, he was, what was he, 61? 61. 61, so young. His last great score, by the way, Beautiful Mind. That was a legitimately he, great score. He, he did kind of fade away for the last 10 years. Uh, it's kind of kind of strange. He Sorry. was not interested. He, you know what? He, and I've read, I had read plenty of interviews with him. He got tired of being offered just the superhero movies, which he didn't want to do. And the well, reason, at a certain point, you after after that career, you have a luxury of being able to turn that stuff down. Well, true. And the reason why he did Amazing Spider-Man was because he got along very well with Mark Webb. Yeah. Because he was a new direct, he was a a new director to that big budget genre, and Horner felt like he could at least. To him, to him, the action stuff was easy. Yeah. 
the reason why he wanted to do Spider-Man was because he felt like he could write some nice themes for Peter Parker and uh, the girl, whatever her name is. Yeah. You got it ready. Uh, Mary, Mary Jane or Emma Stone. Whatever. Emma Stone. So he, he did it because he, he felt like he can really dig into the, the character themes. The action stuff to him at that point in his career, he could just do that. Yeah. It was blindfolded. Well, and, you know, his first score, his real big breakthrough was Battle Beyond the Stars. Which is where he met uh, James Cameron. Which is where he met James Cameron, who was working on uh, on the film under Jiri Murakami as a, uh, as a as an effects technician, and uh, that was a Corman produced film. And essentially, he got the call because Corman said, "I want you to do a score that sounds like a cross between John Williams Star Wars music and Jerry Goldsmith's uh, Star Trek music," and uh, it's exactly what he provided them. And uh, that film is still just such a bizarre oddity. That, that, the, the, you know what people describe that spaceship as, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's like a big fallopian tube or something. No, it, it's a pregnant enterprise flying backwards. <laughs> That's how it was described. It looks like a pregnant enterprise flying backwards. Did, did you hear the story about how he briefly dated Jerry Goldsmith's daughter? In college. In college? Isn't that weird? That's it's kind of creepy. It's kind of creepy. There's and, but, a real, there's like a, there's like a Hitchcockian know, vertigo weird. weird obsession to that. That is true. And, and of course, obviously, because they couldn't afford Jerry Goldsmith. Not yeah. only could they not afford Jerry Goldsmith on uh, Star Trek yeah. Two, but according to Shatner's book, yeah, um, n- director Nick Meyer had to fight Paramount, who preferred a cheaper synth score. They wanted a synth score to save money. And then Meyer said, no, no, I want an orchestral score, and I think I can get somebody young and cheap. I, have, I found this guy. And the rest is history. Well, and we also want to thank everybody who wrote us about uh, apparently your, uh, your, your thing going off. Your, oh, uh, yeah, you know what? <laughs> uh, oh, well, hey. Beep. We had people writing us on the, on the Facebook page saying, there's a beeping in the back. The last two weeks, it's been driving me crazy. Well, we the, reason that's, the reason that's true, the reason that's true is because there was a beeping in the back. Yeah. It was my uh, smoke detector. Yeah. I didn't even notice it. I didn't notice it either. Isn't that funny? Well, it was a Christian uh, Kaczynski. A bunch of people got to us, but yeah, yeah. I have the email from Christian. Yes. Well, we also uh, had an email that I wanted to read, uh, we, and we have a Vox box today too. <laughs> no, not yet. We have a Vox box, but I want to read an email right, right off the top before we talk about your uh, your your vacation because I want to hear about the Sphinx. But um, the what the Sphinx? So we got an email. Uh, from Jason Levy, who said, Hi, Wade and Mark. I was taking a look at cinematographer Dean Cundy's IMDb page and noticed that uh, this guy, who used to be doing major films for Zemeckis, Spielberg, and Ron Howard, has not really done anything of note for many years. All of his listings for the last many years have been mostly comedies and family films and really not a single good film in the bunch. The last really good film I can see is Apollo 13, and after that it all starts, it all starts to go downhill. Do you have any idea what happened to his career? Sure, you can see he hasn't uh, stopped working, but the quality of what he's been working on just really took a turn for the worst. Does he have a bad reputation or something? Okay, first of all, before you answer yeah. that, why does he not mention that Dean also shot Escape from New York? Uh, Put it out there. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> here's the thing. Uh, Dean Cundy is, is going to be 69 this year. Not old, but also not young. And uh, as I wrote back, I, you know, if you look at all the other DPs from that generation, which, which includes like Vittorio Storaro and Alan Davial, all these guys, they're still around, they're still working, but they, they just aren't, you just don't see them showing up on like the big Oscar-nominated films anymore. 
And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is because everything's moved to digital, and these are all film guys. And a lot of film guys don't really embrace the move to digital. They don't want to be working with video cameras. They don't want to be working with a video workflow. They believe in buying film stock and loading it into a camera and timing film. And, you know, they're old school, and that's how they, they learn to light. And they don't want to have to relearn how to relight for something that they think looks ugly. And they're all very capable. I mean, you know, these guys know how to shoot digital. They just don't particularly like it in many cases. So, and the other thing is they shoot at a certain speed with a certain crew, and they're very expensive. And a lot of these new upcoming DPs who are able to basically shoot things just raw so you don't have to worry about lighting or, you know, actually getting the shot right, and you make it in post, which is kind of cheating, but that's how a lot of films are done. That way you can shoot quickly, and you save money. So it's, it's the, the way that movies are made. The nature of production has changed to such a degree that a lot of those old-school DPs, as good as they are, they, they kind of don't plug into the hole anymore. And it's sad, and it's unfortunate, but, you know, it's, uh, it's the reality we're dealing with. Well, that's the, um, that's the amazing part about uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. Now, Mad Max Fury Road, as I'm sure you know, the, uh, the DP there came out of retirement, John Seal, he had re- John Seal had retired. I know. And, and, and he came out of retirement just to do Mad Max. And George Miller talked him out of retirement. Yeah. He had to talk him out of it. And John Seal is, I don't know how old he is, he was probably by, by, he's part bo- of that born in, in the early 40s. He's that, he's that generation as well. Yeah, John, John Seal was born in 1942. Yeah. So he's like, whatever, 70 years old, coming like, out of retirement, like coming out of retirement to sit in like the sweltering Zimbabwe desert or whatever for like, you know, six months shooting a Mad Max film. And tell. And by the way, we also have new gear this week, uh, new microphones, new uh, new everything. It's new, new whole new very sound, exciting, whole new sound setup. Which want to throw a shout out to uh, a big thanks to Denny Bryant over in New Zealand who uh, recommended the gear that we are actually using. Really? So, yes, she did. She did. She recommended this gear, and I thought, why not? You know, she's she's got she's got killer music know how. So. I uh, I figured why not? So went and invested in the gear. Let us know if it sounds good. It certainly sounds good to me right now. So uh, we'll see how it sounds once it converts and pops onto the internet and goes through the gremlin uh, gauntlet. And you know who who knows what it sounds like at that point. But right now it sounds good. I'm digging it. All right. Meanwhile, wait. Are we not talking meanwhile, about yeah. uh, DVDs and you Blu-rays? Come on. You know we got uh, we got documentaries. So uh, let's let's plow through some documentaries here real quickly. We got a lot. I of, like how you start with the interesting stuff. Well, you know, there's some really interesting stuff like here, like free the nipple, uh, free the nipple. Hey, that, you know what? That's a good place to start. Yeah, free the nipple. Uh, this is ah boy. You know what? Every time we get a get any kind of a documentary that ha- that deals with uh, any kind of uh, genitalia, nudity, whatever, it it, it you always got to wonder. Are they doing this just to be kind of, you know, prurient and provocative, or is there really a point here? And here there's actually a point. Uh, this is the true story of, um, of Liv and With, who were these activists in New York who uh, were actually it, – it's, it's the story of their kind of whole gender equality fight. But it's, um, it's basically about – kind of encapsulated in the idea of women's right to go topless just like men can go topless. Now, I just want to say, I'm really not in favor of men going topless. Most men that I know, I kind of wish that they'd stay covered up most of the time. I have a dad you know bod. I mean? Yeah. See, I'm not, I'm not into the, I'm not into the, yeah. The, the, but, you know, if women want to go topless, I've lived in France. I've seen it. Um, it's got its pros and cons. 
most of the women on French beaches really should not be going topless, but hey, you know, whatever. It's an interesting story. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, it's got a it's got a real sassy feel to it. I, I, it's an okay doc. I mean, it's not groundbreaking or anything, but I was all right. And then uh, we unfortunately we have Manny Liam Neeson nomin- uh, narrates Manny, which is the story of uh, a gentleman who is no longer a, uh, a champion boxer. Um, you know the, the Manny Pacquiao is a really interesting guy. Uh, he's he's really soft spoken. He's really religious, and he's a really weird interview. And uh, sometimes I wonder if there isn't a language barrier or something. But anyway, uh, this is essentially the story of Manny Pacquiao, and it is illuminating. It tell it gives you a lot of insights into who he is and and why he is the way he is and why he's such a great fighter. I don't know that it's really going to. Um, I don't know that it illuminates what happened in the aftermath of that fight against, uh, uh, what's his name, the guy that kicked his butt. I don't pay attention yeah. to boxing anyway. anymore. Oh, it's uh, not even at Holyfield. Uh, Manny Pacquiao yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, some dude. Yeah, well, anyway. Some boxer. I'm drawing a blank. But, yeah, that, they, they, they're both getting sued. You know that. I just... The other, the other guy by his girlfriend for beating her up. Blah, blah, he, blah. Anyway, Manny Pacquiao for, for faking it in, or not telling people he was injured or something. Um, and uh, then also got a thing here called Britain's Bloodiest Dynasty, the Plantagenet. Um, this is designed to sort of capitalize on the fascination with Game of Thrones by pretending to be the real-life Game of Thrones. They even throw a pull quote on the from the Daily Mail on here that, that posits that. It's a little bit of that. If you don't know the Plantagenets, it's the family that uh, basically split into two halves, or it's a legacy that became two different halves uh, after... The uh, the era of Richard the Lionheart, the second, the Third Crusade, and the Magna Carta, uh, you know, King John, all that stuff, and then it gave birth to the War of the Roses. This is from Athena. Really interesting. The War of the Roses is a an amazing period of British history, and uh, I thought this was fantastic. Uh, really great uh, educational bit from uh, the uh, the line, the Athena line of uh, Acorn. Uh, we also have this uh, couple docs that I liked. Uh, this thing called "The Way Things Go." Now, the, uh, the way things go is about this um, this these Swiss artists, uh, Peter Fischilli and David Weiss. And what they do is they create these very complicated Rube Goldberg as contraptions. And a lot of them use like household items, like you know shoes and you know these like wooden ramps that they build and kettles and 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 you know whatever, tires, and they build these contraptions, and then they see what they can do with them. And it's really cool. They also set... I'll tell you what they can do with them. Shove them them up your butt. Yeah, yeah. 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 Up your butt. Um, And so sometimes they... They set them on fire, or they use they spray them with water, and they use all the, they try to get all these interesting chemical reactions out of them, and it's just yeah. really fun. Yeah, these guys are really interesting iconoclastic scientists who found their own way to sort of choreograph these really cool experiments, and uh, I think this was a cool little documentary. It's a cool little uh, look at uh, at guys who do things a different way. And you can't beat that. Now the movie's pretty old; it's from 1987, but we, still, we, it's good. We do things a different way. Every week. The wrong way. But. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Smiling Through the Apocalypse, a very, very good documentary. This is on DVD. It's all about Esquire magazine in the 60s. Now, in the 60s, in the 60s there was a sort of a sea change in the magazine industry. And you got a lot of... Um, Playboy. Playboy and Esquire was right there. And you, but you know what? 
these magazines were on the forefront of a new kind of journalism, very much in the Truman Capodian Cold Blood way. Y- you know, uh, Peter Bogdanovich was the uh, film critic for Esquire. He was. Yep. Very originally. exciting stuff. Yep. Um, so this is about Harold Hayes and how Harold Hayes was the editor of Esquire during those years. And this documentary is uh, directed by his son. And uh, so obviously it's very fawning, but it's also very true. And you really get a sense of how magazines back then, when there were, you know, a dozen magazines in the country that anyone cared about. Now there's a million magazines and blogs and whatever, websites and whatever. But back in the 60s, it was not that way. So you get a sense of Esquire magazine and how they kind of changed the landscape of magazine publishing um, through their long-form articles and their photography. So uh, it's good stuff. Smiling Through the Apocalypse. Also, we have a pretty good documentary on Babe Ruth. This is called American Hercules. Uh, stupid name. <laughs> uh, this is uh, by the good folks at the MLB Network. Uh, by the way, the Mets, uh, they won today. Oh, well, good. That's but a change. It, isn't it, though? Ugh, we're, Just taking a guess. We're, no, we're pretty much back to being the Mets okay. now. Okay. We were great. Now we're back to being the Mets. Anyway, uh, this one, the, what, the only thing I can really recommend here, uh, you know, this is the oft-told story of Babe Ruth. Uh, there's a lot of great archive footage, mm. a lot of archive footage that I have not seen before, him and his family, him on the field. So I can really, I can really recommend it just based on the amount of archival material. So uh, check it out, uh, American Hercules, Babe Ruth. Eh, what else do we have here? We have If You Build It. Uh, now, this is from the guys who made uh, Wordplay. Wordplay was one of my favorite documentaries well, that, was good. that year. That was good. And uh, it's all about this particular innovative way that kids are being educated in rural areas like North Carolina. And this, these guys, they work with the local high schools, and they sort of get really granular with the kids' lives. It's not just about the school. It's about, the com- it's about working with them in their community, working with them in their, in their private lives to make sure that they're getting the education that they need, that they're not going down the wrong path. So it's a very interesting way to do it, um, this thing, if you build it. It's all about uh, education in these rural areas. So if you want to look at a different, I know Wade's a big fan of a Common Core. I I know nothing about Common Core. I thought you like I thought you hated Common Core. No, I uh, me I hate no. I'm uh, I'm I kind of hate. Well, that's a gets into a whole different conversation. When when Greg Whiteley's new documentary comes out and we talk about it, which is all about uh, the education system, I'll get into all of that stuff. I have very peculiar and particular views of the education system, based on an event that happened to me when I was in third grade, and I got very very angry about it, and it has tainted my views ever since. Third grade. Uh, My whole I, life, third grade. I, I know I refuse to get into this conversation because we'll spend an hour and a half yep, ranting true. about freaking education. Mm-hmm. All right, two more uh, that I have right now. Uh, this one's great. Bob Hope entertaining the troops, American entertainers in World War II. Now, um, you know, nowadays, you know, stand-up comics, they, 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 they go to Iraq and they entertain the troops. But really, a lot of that started with Bob Hope. Bob Hope was an amazing supporter of our troops. He would go overseas during World War II and, and subsequent wars as well. He would go overseas and entertain the troops with a whole bunch of great celebrities. He would get them to go over there. Bing Crosby, Jack Benny, Abbott and Costello, Lena Horne, Dinah Shore, um, Irving Berlin. So this is a documentary all about Bob Hope traveling overseas for these, um, for these uh, shows to support the troops and all the celebrities he brought with him. And it's great. It's wonderful. Your parents will love it. Uh, James Cagney would go, you know, even Humphrey Bogart showed up to a couple of these. Um, so there you go. Entertaining the Troops, Bob Hope, very, very good stuff. A great piece of World War II history that has, uh, you know, that overlaps with the entertainment business. 
And finally, uh, Lisa, for me right now, from the good folks at Virgil Films, Pandas, The Journey Home. Oh, yeah. Now, this is a Blu-ray uh, Blu all about stupid pandas. Because pandas are stupid. I like pandas. They're the dumbest pandas. Pandas are the dumbest pandas ever. They're, they're still endangered. That's the sad thing. They just cannot get these things to, to properly reproduce. It's just they, they, have the, they have the damnedest time. And then well, when because they have they're all filled with fur. I mean, yeah. how, does, how does one, how does the, the boy part know. get into the girl part with I all that know. fur? And how do you know who's a guy and who's a girl? You just don't. I don't know. I mean, you know, pandas, they're, they're, they're not that bright. They don't know. Yeah. Anyway, beautiful uh, photography, pandas, the journey home. Uh, beautiful pandas. It's pandas. Stop that. Okay. Pandas. And we, uh, here, I'll, I'll, watch me burn out, burn through the rest of these docs real super quick. Oh, do you have another one? You got another one? Oh, this is Generation yeah. Baby Buster. Um, this, uh, this really was more for you, Wade. Is I it really? Say. Yeah. And uh, it's. The whole, the whole baby thing. You know what? It's really. It's, it's, it's cute and has a lot of humor in it. I have to say it's probably better as like a 2020 type trend piece. It's all about how women are, just are not having kids. Why, why is that for, why is that for me? Uh, <laughs> I've because, got uh, one. Because I'm not a woman. Because nobody wants you to have more kids. I know. Uh, you know, the, uh, I, I cannot get the theme song for Sophia the First out of my head all day long. That thing just, it's like on a permanent loop. I don't know what that is. Um, so this is all about how women are very ambivalent about having kids and why there's some societal pressure for them to have kids. If they don't have kids, are they a failure? Uh, can you have a happy life uh, and not be seen as selfish because you don't want kids? So, you know, again, there's value in, in, there's value in this subject. Uh, she does show have a lot of humor, including some animation. That's kind of fun, a lot of interviews. Um, but ultimately, I think this is just like a 30-minute, you know, 2020 piece. But she stretches it out to an hour and a half. All right. There you go. Uh, all right. Here are the rest of the docs. Stop the Pounding Heart. What an interesting movie this is. Uh, this is one of those documentaries. It's almost like it, 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 it verges. There, there are a few of these. They're, they're sort of more lyrical character study tone poem things. You almost lose track of the fact that this is, uh, this is a nonfiction film. Uh, it's essentially a, uh, a look at a particular woman and a particular family that are part of a uh, a very very re kind of re extremely religious very conservative sub community but it's done in such a non-judgmental pastoral uh way and the way that their their lives and the story of their lives just kind of trans unspool in front of the camera it's uh, there's something very kind of malik like about this very days of heaven and um really interesting um this thing was in uh, a sidebar at a, in competition, kind of a, a non-competitive sidebar at Cannes. And uh, I think it's definitely worth checking out if you like films that just have a certain flowing, lyrical nature to them. Uh, it's like uh, the direct cinema era sort of brought up into the Terrence Malick era. Anyway, Stop the Pounding Heart by a filmmaker named Roberto Minervini. Uh, very good. We have a uh, three-DVD set, Historic Tanks and Battles of World War II. I am uh, I'm a big fan of any, anything to do with World War II and tanks. I just love all that footage. And uh, this just really goes to town. It's exclusively focused on the tanks, the models of tanks, uh, the tank warfare. So obviously you get a lot of Patton stuff in here. You get a lot of Rommel stuff in here. 
really, really interesting uh, because that stuff tends to be kind of a, a sidebar to everything else. You focus on all these other battles and air battles and uh, ground battles, and the, the tanks are just kind of a tool, and nobody ever really gets into the details of them. So whenever they get into tanks and ships and the really mechanical details, I think it's really interesting. Uh, the uh, the Sherman tank is extensively discussed here, as is the one the T thirty four from Russia, and uh, you talk about the Battle of Kursk, the Battle of Normandy, the Ardennes offensive, a lot of really great stuff here. So that for for fans of the the big armored uh, weaponry of World War Two, yeah, that can't get any better. Uh, Giuseppe makes a movie is an Adam Rifkin film. We've interviewed Adam Rifkin on this uh, show before. Uh, we like Adam Rifkin a lot. And this is, a, this is from Sinalicious Picks. This is just a totally bizarre look at this guy named Giuseppe Andrews who was uh, at one point actually an actor. Uh, he was in Independence Day in Detroit Rock City. And he just makes these like super un- these ultra-low-budget films and uh, they're just, he just like grabs, you know, vagrants and bums and hobos off the street. And it's very, it's very strange. And it's, uh, so, somehow it's, you, you, you get caught up in the fact that, that you, you don't, you're not quite sure if the movie about this is more fictitious than the movies being portrayed. You know what I mean? You get into this weird kind of meta thing. You get into like it, a meta whirlpool. It's an Adam Rifkin film. It's an Adam in, Rifkin in film. In other words. Yeah. Bottom line. You know you're going to get your money's worth. You do. The Dark Backward. He still owns that. Uh, got some great ones here from First Run Features. Uh, Sagrada, The Mystery of Creation. Uh, this, is a, this is actually a really, really interesting uh, look at the... Uh, from, from a filmmaker named Stefan Haupt, who is a, a documentarian I am not familiar with. Essentially, this is a look at an amazing um, Barcelona Basilica and it is the Basilica uh, La Sagrada Familia, and it's just uh, absolutely an amazing 19th century uh, architectural work of art. The film is in uh, Catalan, English, French, Spanish. Uh, you know, so you get English subtitles whenever people aren't speaking English. Um, there's also optional Spanish subtitles, but really, really very interesting if you're, uh, if you're into archite- uh, architecture and uh, particularly uh, old European architecture. It's an amazing structure. Barcelona, really interesting city. I keep meaning to go there. Great soccer team, by the way. Oh, did I mention the Women's World Cup is on? You don't care. Uh, What now? Yeah, whatever. Uh, Also from First Run Features, via the Sam Golden Company, a year in Champagne. Not exactly a year actually in the liquid Champagne, Uh, but this is about the process of uh, making Champagne, and uh, especially in the Champagne. It can't be Champagne unless it's made in Champagne. In the Champagne region. That's right. Exactly. So it's not like you're in the liquid, you're in the region. Correct. Where they make the liquid. Yeah. I'm just making And the clear. region and the liquid have the same name. Exactly. It's very but, confusing. And that name is Champagne. It's very confusing. It's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, um, Pellegrino. Like, if you go to San Pellegrino, that's where the San Pellegrino comes from. But you have to take the San off. Yeah, I guess. Here's the Champagne. And it, yet, it, it'd be like going to the Coke region where they make Coke. Yeah, exactly. Or the Pepsi region. No, that's the uh, uh, Dr. Pepper region. Oh, they make Spain, Pepsi in the doctor. See, yes, I yeah. knew that. I knew Pibb that. In the Isn't that a funny thing? I knew that. Well, anyway. where, did Dr. Where, where did Dr. Pepper go to school? What does what, what he a doctor of? I mean, seriously. Salt. He's a, he's a doctor of salt. Carbonation. Uh, and making, making Miss Hill making dance matter. 
Um, great dance doc. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm up and down on dance docs at a certain point. I, you, you know, you can only watch people contort themselves so many different ways. Uh, but this is, the, this is a really interesting one. It's a story of Martha Hill, who uh, became a, who, who really is kind of an amazing figure in the history of American dance uh, that I certainly was never familiar with. But uh, she founded the uh, dance division at Juilliard. And this is just decades worth of material and footage, and it's really an interesting story. So uh, even though I'm, I, you know, wasn't as engrossed in this as I am in other dance films, which are about more famous, you know, choreographers and whatnot, certainly engaging. Whatever way, I'm, I'm checking Tinder. Uh, you go do that, and then uh, winding down, just a few more here. We yeah, also see, have here's the thing with Tinder. You know, okay, here, here's my theory of online dating. Yeah. By the way, I really was uh, checking Tinder while you were doing this. Okay. Theory of online. Here's my theory of online dating. So a girl's got a bunch of photos, right? You, right. you look at all the photos. Sure. Pretty much the ugliest photo of her yeah. is what she actually looks like. Okay. Now, if, if the ugliest photo of her, you think she's attractive, yeah. then she's probably attractive. Right. Yes, sir. Would you like me to give you these? Yes, please. Okay. Here, I'm just, just say, to... say it. Say, give me those. I'm letting you keep talking. I'm trying to keep a, keep a clean desk here. <laughs> um. Uh, so that's just a well, word to the wise, which is the um, the ugliest photo, yeah. the ugliest profile photo of the girl is what she truly looks like, which is to say that if you if you think that she's attractive in her worst photo, then you then that's good. You think okay. she's attractive. Well, there we go. But what will happen is you'll you'll scroll. You'll, oh, cute. Oh, cute. Oh, cute. Cute. Looking good. Oh, <laughs> and that's pretty much my online experience. Uh, Blu-ray from just three more here. Blu-ray from Magnolia Ballet 422, which is uh, uh, essentially looking at the um, the from it's going to go. You start with the very very first rehearsal uh, at the New York uh, New York City Ballet, and you go all the way through the entire process of how a single ballet is put together. And it is excruciating, and it is exacting, and it is fascinating, and it is beautifully photographed. Um, if you don't like ballet, you're not going to particularly love it, but uh, the New York City Ballet is amazing. And, uh, you know, what, what these people go through in terms of stressing themselves and... Uh, the, I mean, it's just... It, it, it's not glamorous. <laughs> it's really an incredibly strenuous job. They must really love it. Uh, also, an uh, Emmy-nominated Emmy nominated doc here, Running From Crazy, which is the untold story of the Hemingways. This is from Barbara Koppel, who is just absolutely amazing, and Oprah Winfrey uh, threw her weight behind this as well. This is from Virgil. And um, this essentially gets into uh, Mariel Hemingway's mental health journey. And... Um, it's you know because it, she she discovered that there is this problem in the family and that it's just not just Ernest uh, but it sort of runs through their genes, and it's actually it's very personal but very forthcoming and very interesting, and I have a I have a Mariel Hemingway uh, story by the way. Uh, what? <laughs> we were this was I don't know maybe uh, a few months ago we were at a market uh, that. Uh, you know, kind of a, a, whole, a holistic market around here. It's very, it's not like shishier than Whole Foods, but it was. You know, we were on we were on the way home, and we stopped off. We're you like, were at PC Greens. No, no, it was not. It wasn't PC Greens. It was. Uh, it was like a, an Arawan. Liar. You ever heard of Arawan? Of course, there's one by my office. I've been going there for years. Really? Yeah. Okay, so we stopped off. It's, it's a trite back of the Grove. 
Okay, so we see we see an Arahuan. We're like, okay, well, let, you know, let's stop off. We'll grab something quick at the Arahuan Deli. Probably has something interesting like, you know, uh, fruitcake nugget chicken with barley or something. Who knows? So something interesting. So we, we go in, and while I'm, you know, I start to sort of look for some food and put some things together. And meanwhile, for some reason, my daughter, who's two, just decides that she's not going to be cooperative, as kids often do. So she just splays right down, face down on the floor, and just lies there uncooperative, like, I am not moving, you aren't going to make me. And so my, my wife sort of stands there, arms folded, and just lets her do it. It's like, fine, if you're going to be that way, we're not, we're not, I'm not going to pick you up, we're not going to play that game. Meanwhile, Mariel Hemingway <laughs> walks in and stops and looks at this scene and l- looks at the kid on the floor and then looks at my wife as though to say, is this yours? And Christy kind of nods and goes, yeah. And then she just sort of smiled and walked along. Now, how long ago was this? Like two or three months ago. Wow. Yeah. So we had a little Mariel Hemingway encounter. I can't wait until my daughter's older and I'll tell her all about it and she won't care. And then I'll show and, her. And then, then you show her personal best. And then I'll show her Star 80. Yeah, it's what, and personal best, and she'll be traumatized. And then lastly, uh, remote area medical. Uh, obviously, um, the, uh, the Obamacare recently survived another court challenge, so we are in for uh, – so that's the end of it, right? Yeah, fat chance. The, uh, we're we're going to be – this health care debate is going to go on endlessly in the U.S., and so uh, filling in the gaps are films that actually don't deal with the policy of it as much as they deal with just the people. And they all have a little bit of a political agenda, some of them one way, some of them the other, but uh, they are worth watching because they're about people. They're, they just actually tell you what it's like on the ground when you're not dealing with policy experts and politicians and judges and uh, you know, insurance companies and doctors. Um, and in this case, you, you deal with a, a really interesting collection of people who are having some serious health problems, and some of them health professionals, some of them ordinary people. Very, very interesting. And uh, the, uh, the idea really centers around this, air, this thing called Remote Area Medical and its founder, Stan Brock, um, uh, which he kind of uh, created, it sort of was a brainstorm of him that he uh, came up with in the Amazon, and it is a, uh, it is, uh, it's a, it's kind of a workshop that gives healthcare to people who can't afford it and who can't find it. So, really an interesting film from the uh, docurama wing of Cynodyme. Wade, uh, documentary, uh, music documentary, very much recommended by me, is called uh, The Wrecking Crew. Now, um, The Wrecking Crew was the, uh, was a, a backup band and they played on, they're mostly synonymous with the Beach Boys, playing on all the Beach Boy records. Um, and if you saw the uh, movie Love and Mercy, you saw uh, the Wrecking Crew fictionally in action. By the way, one of the members of the Wrecking Crew in the movie Love and Mercy was played by my sax teacher. Really? My saxophone teacher, uh, he, played one of the, uh, he played the flute player in the Wrecking Crew in Love and Mercy. Anyway, uh, this is very much like... Um, this is very much like uh, the Funk Brothers, which is the house band for uh, um, uh, Motown. Very much like uh, Booker T and the MGs, which was the house band for for the Stax Studio. Uh, the Wrecking Crew is the house band for just all of these great, amazing, wonderful songs. Again, Phil Spector, Nancy Sinatra, Sonny and Cher, Elvis, the Monkees. But really, they're kind of synonymous with the Beach Boys. So. Mm. It's just a wonderful documentary. You get a lot of great music and a lot of great archival footage. Uh, it's a lot of great recollections, a lot of great stories. 
Uh, these guys were so good, so professional, and so classy. They're really one of the unsung heroes of early of 60s and early 70s rock and roll. So I would very much uh, recommend The Wrecking Crew. Pretty cool. Also, there's a uh, there's a Carol King uh, uh, musical on Broadway right now. It's called. Here's uh, great. Huh? I hear it's great. I, I, you know what? Uh, it, 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 I hear it is great, too. I have not seen it um, because I was in New York twice in the last two months, and I was too busy both times. Um, anyway, so this is called Music Cares, a tribute to Carole King. Now, Carole King is a uh, 70s songwriter, did a lot of amazing songs, and here you've got these great artists like Lady Gaga and... Uh, Zach Brown and Gloria Estefan and Miranda Lambert and James Taylor all reinterpreting her classic hits. Mm. Um, so far away, and uh, I feel the earth move under my feet. Sure. Sing it, Wade. Sure. No, I'm not going to sing You're not going to sing I feel no. the earth move mm -hmm. under my no. feet? No, um, Anyway, a lot of great songs that uh, your parents would love but you probably never heard of. But still, they're great songs. She, she comes from that classic 70s singer-songwriter mentality. So it's like all her singing it and performing it and writing it, and so it's great. Crying in the Rain, Natural Woman. Uh, so there you go. A Music Cares tribute to Carole King. Your parents will love it. And one more on the music end before we get into uh, new movies is a, uh, a Blu-ray and CD combo set. And mind you, this is standard definition Blu-ray, so you get lossless DTS audio, but the, the, the video is standard def, so it's the equivalent of a DVD on a Blu-ray, if that makes sense. But you get this along with a CD. Uh, it is the Rolling Stones from the vault, the Marquee Club, live in 1971. Pretty great. Um, always nice to see when the when the Stones play just like clubs and not giant arenas. Uh, and it's by no means a small club, but it's a it's a it's a pretty cool collection of songs. Uh, you get Brown Sugar and uh, Let It Rock and uh, and Satisfaction. Obviously, a lot of a lot of really cool stuff here and some bonus tracks. I got the blues, a couple of alternative takes. Um, so yeah, uh, definitely cool. Uh, if you're a Stones fan, it's a must-have. I'm a Stones fan. All right, new movies, Mark. Let it rip. Let it rip. Uh, let's start with. Uh, you know what? I have to say, uh, just in terms of pure enjoyment, Kingsman: The Secret Service, one of my top I, films. I love this movie, dude. I missed this in theaters. I I watched this thing in. It, I mean, mind you. You know, with the volume of stuff we get, it's like, let's watch, you know, 10 minutes of it, check this, check. I watched every single solitary second of this movie. This is a blast. Twice. <laughs> I watched it twice. How great is this I movie? watched every second of every extra. I, I indulged myself in, I looked for Easter eggs that weren't there. I just, I didn't, want to, I didn't want it to end. I truly did not want this movie to end. I agree. Could not I agree more. I didn't want it to end. I think this is just a terrific movie. Colin Firth. Uh, plays a secret. He plays a secret service agent who's part of this Kingsman uh, initiative, where he's yeah. incredibly dapper. Yeah, way more dapper than James well, Bond could ever. Like James Bond is a homeless man compared to how dapper <laughs> Colin Firth is. And then he takes this uh, this wayward kid under his wing. It's uh, you know, it, it's, it's whip smart. It's exciting. It's fun. It's a blast. It's very tongue in cheek. It's got, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little twist, a little bit crack. It's a little, it's a little campy. Samuel Jackson with his lisp. Is great, and there's and it, there are it's it's incredibly irreverent. I love the fact that it is just in it is over the top R rated. It's not a it's a, at no point did they say, oh, we really should try to make a PG thirteen. Didn't even think about it. Once it's, once once <laughs> once they said the F word a couple times, they're like, we're all in. We're all in. We're all in. We're all in. A lot and of violence. A lot of uh, it's great. Oh my gosh, the violence is so over the top. I mean, it Matthew is, Vaughn. He that guy can bring it. He he, he has fun. That I guy just, has fun. I yeah, I love it when Matthew Vaughn isn't just. 
being like, I mean, I love it whenever he does anything. I think he's one of the best directors working. But when he's not doing an X-Men film or a tentpole he's been hired for, when it's something that he can put his imprint on, uh, you know, then it just it just kills it. I mean, look, look obviously, I'm a huge fan of Kick-Ass, the original Kick-Ass, which has a lot in common with this. Uh, similar sensibilities. It's just, it's cartoonish, it's comic booky, of course, based on a graphic novel, but it just, it has a mean spirit, and it's not afraid of it, and it's very tongue-in-cheek when it references the Bond films. And, and I did not expect that twist about two-thirds of the way in. I, I didn't either. I didn't either. I didn't see it coming. Uh, what's interesting, too, in the extras, they talk extensively about the changes that they made from the graphic novel, which is very interesting. Uh, one of them, may, namely, being the church scene which is not in the graphic novel. It's, a, it's originally a wedding on a beach. And Matthew Vaughn just decided that you know people wouldn't respond well to that particular kind of thing happening at a wedding. But he thought, if, it's, if it takes place in kind of a Westboro Baptist church thing, uh, then I think that's, that really pushes it. And in the, the audience will get behind it because yeah, it's a Westboro church but thing. But it's, oh my gosh, it's just this. It, and look, a lot, this film caught a little bit of flack for a certain um, a, a political... Uh, some people read like a political statement into it, which I think is silly. It's really kind of an anarchistic statement. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very cynical film, but it's kind of gleefully cynical, and I appreciate that. I, it just sort of has a devil-may-care attitude. It has no respect for anyone or anything, and it just sort of slaughters sacred cows left and right, and there's something cathartic about that, and man, is it well-directed. It is. I mean, it's so well-directed. He just he he is so much better than even that that his mentor Guy Ritchie at at that just hyper cutty hyper violent highly stylized slow motion fast well, motion but the stuff. Thing with, the thing with Guy Ritchie is that is that he's kind of become a bit of a cliche, whereas Matthew Vaughn takes some of that. Whereas Matthew Vaughn yeah. he's not there yet. He's just as stylish as Guy Ritchie, but doesn't feel as tired. Yeah, I agree. Point being, we love the Kingsman. Loved it. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and then we've got, uh, you know, Blu-ray of Song 1, which we talked about some weeks ago, and I'm not quite sure why this is on the, on the radar again, but it's on my calendar. So here we go. Uh, this is, I guess, being re-released, or at least re-released on Blu-ray uh, this week. Song 1, which is just, uh, I wanted to like it more. Uh, unfortunately, it's just really, really tedious. Uh, Anne Hathaway essentially plays a woman who's uh, an anthropologist and, you know, uh, her brother has an accident and is in a coma and she comes home and, and gets involved with this uh, musician who was sort of an icon of her brother's as a way of trying to rouse him from his coma. Anyway, uh, it's it, it should be a really en endearing uh, family drama. Winds up feeling very contrived and a little bit uh, under... Undercooked, I guess. Uh, Jonathan Demi threw his name on it, got this thing uh, made as a producer. Uh, some good supporting cast members here. You know, uh, Mary Steenburgen, always wonderful to see. She's just she's been great forever. But uh, otherwise, you know, I Anne Hathaway, kind of a misfire for her. So that's uh, that's a little unfortunate. Uh, wait, I was kind of hoping that the forger would be like a little uh, return to form for John Travolta, who's 61 years old now, something yeah. like that. God love him. Yeah. Instead, this thing is uh, really just a sluggish and a little bit cliched and hammy kind of genre film. Uh, it's, an, it's about an art heist, is all I'll tell you. There's a lot of, a lot of twists and turns in it. Travolta plays the, uh, the titular forger. He, he plays a watchular forger? The titular forger. Okay. He makes a deal with, these, right. uh, with, this, with the mob, okay. right? Uh, so he trades an early release from prison for something he's got to do for the mob. Anyway, it's a promising cast. Christopher Plummer's in it. Please don't die, Christopher Plummer. We love you. You're the best. 
He is the best. Yeah. Love, he's he played uh, Klingon in Star Trek. He was so amazing in Beginners. He's Christopher Plummer. Anyway, um, you know, very paint by numbers, uh, kind of implausible. Uh, it's kind of it's, again, it's a little bit sluggish. Not that inspired. It's a little too formula to really, you know, to really. This is a little better than a straight to DVD movie, quite frankly. It's just really not that great. Um, so I would pass on the Forger unless it's a Saturday night and you haven't seen it and you like John Travolta. Then I just it's it's a good popcorn time waster. But uh, uh, you'll you you'll be ex- uh, you'll be expecting more and you won't get it. So uh, the very unfortunate unfinished business, um, man. I just I, I, I always want to like Vince Vaughn movies because I like Vince Vaughn. I like the I like the kind of hipster. I'm still sort of stuck on swingers. I want that guy to be in every movie, but he's not in every movie. Uh, unfinished business. So Vince Vaughn, Tom Wilkinson, and Dave Franco are entrepreneurs who go to Europe for a business meeting and then uh, wind up basically having to suffer through what is yet another knockoff of The Hangover. And that's it. It's a, it's a hangover knockoff, uh, except, you know, with businessmen in Europe. I don't, I don't, it's not, there's nothing new here. Um, okay, supporting cast, not really any extras in this thing. Uh, you know, there's uh, some featurette stuff, and that's it. I just, it's unfortunate. Needed a better movie. Uh, Run All Night is um, Liam Neeson's latest attempt to uh, uh, save his wife's life through film. <laughs> I mean, that's how I, you know, he didn't do this until his wife died. I know. So I, I have this theory yeah. that he became an action hero, you know, starting with Taken yeah. and whatnot, because he felt like maybe somehow cathartically through film he could save his wife yeah maybe so now all he does is run around with a gun saving people and the latest is uh, run all night and i have to say this thing is completely serviceable mm-hmm. uh you know again i love taken taken was great blast of fresh air he was great in it but he has not done anything as good as taken since nope um so run all night very boilerplate um, it's funny, like it's it, it's at once boilerplate and too complicated. Yeah. Uh, so it's like it's one of those tough guy redemption things where Liam Neeson, you know, he's uh, he's his hit, he's his bad guy, and he's best friends with the mob boss, and now he's haunted by his past, and then he's he's hounded by this police detective, and it's, it gets kind of complicated. But uh, again, it's a little like the Forger, where it's a completely serviceable Saturday night, uh, you know, red box rental. Sure. Um, but really, I just think this thing is just so frantic and just, uh, just, it's just so frantic and complicated and cliched. And I feel like I've seen it before. And I wish Liam Neeson would go do something else. Yeah, he will at some point. He'll have to. He, he, <laughs> he's running out of movies he's to. Uh, out of, he's running out of people to save. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, at a certain point, he's got to become, you know, a real actor again. Uh, you know, big in Japan. This is a, this is okay. Uh, this is basically about a rock band who. Um, it's an, a little independent film from Strand. It's about a rock band that uh, from Seattle who gets a chance to go on tour in Japan. And as a fish out of water film, this is actually a, a lot more interesting. The uh, it, it kind of has a, it's got a little edge to it. And any, I mean, most of these movies where Japan is this weird alien world, whether it's Lost in Translation or even you know Jerry Lewis baseball movie, or you know there were there were a handful of these. Um, uh, Michael Douglas in Black Rain. Uh, there's all kind, you know. There are a million different profiles of Japan that these movies can present, and they all seem to kind of find something a little different. And this is one. This is a take I hadn't seen before. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, the uh, the director is Jeff uh, John Jeffcoat, 
who is starting to become kind of a kind of a thing, and he's he does a really good job. So I uh, I would say for a cool little indie, if you have like a, if you're interested in uh, you know fish out of water movies, uh, movies with a little rock and roll angle to them, big in Japan, worth checking out. Wait, interesting film uh, you might want to check out called Welcome to Me. This is uh, Kristen Wiig's latest attempt to. Um become a little bit more of a serious actress. I was a huge fan of the Skeleton Twins. I thought that... That was, was great, I wasn't thought, it? I, that was a big... That was another surprise. Like, I just thought that was so good. I, she was amazing, and he was amazing. They're great. They're great in it. Fantastic movie. I really was very surprised. Yeah. I, was just, I thought that movie was just terrific. Uh, this one is not as good. This one, although it's fine, it's, it's a... It's a um, it is... Uh, she plays a woman who has... Uh, who's borderline, and as, and as someone whose ex-girlfriend was borderline... Yeah. Uh, I can tell you that uh, there's a certain amount of truth to this. and uh, But, uh, however, it's not a disease of the week type movie. It's uh, played for laughs, but not like ha-ha comedy laughs. In the movie, Kristen Wiig plays the uh, woman with personality disorder uh, with, who's borderline, and she wins the, uh, uh, she wins the lottery, wins millions of dollars in the lottery, and decides to take the money and start her own talk show. Cool. And uh, that's what she does. And so she uses this talk show to work through her emotional issues on live TV. This thing played at uh, Toronto, and it was fairly well received. Um, it was directed by um, a uh, this actress filmmaker named uh, Shira Piven, who does a pretty good job. Be curious to see what she does next. Um, so it's definitely a bit of an experiment. It's definitely a stretch for Kristen Wiig, who I think. Um, Again, it's not a it's not a ha ha funny comedy, but because she's like a bit wacky, she does get to like she does get to hit those kind of I'm a wacky actress beats because this character is a little bit weird. But uh, there's still a lot of deep soulful stuff in it, so um, I think that Kristen Wiig is kind of uh, expanding nicely into the dramatic Concur. realm. Concur. I don't know that she's going to win an Oscar anytime soon, but uh, you know. But I think this is a compassionate film. Uh, it's a well-meaning film. Uh, it's a good film. It's a quirky film, and uh, it's definitely something to check out. Welcome to me. All right, I got three films here. I'm going to kick through real quickly. One is a really cool genre movie, low budget genre thing, but Strange Blood, directed by a music video uh, director by the name of Chad Michael Ward. Uh, this is kind of in the fly. Chad Michael Vincent? No, Chad Michael Ward. Chad Michael Vincent? No, Chad Michael Ward. Chad Michael Vincent? No, stop it. This is in the uh, Frankenstein slash the fly mode. And it's basically about a guy who's uh, he's a scientist. They're always scientists. It's a horrible occupation. He's trying to uh, find a cure for this uh, sort of a, a catch-all cure for illness and winds up uh, through the process turning himself into just a, a horrible monster, just a, a deadly killer, crazed, lunatic, uh, whatever have you. Uh, it's basically just a horror film. It's kind of a genre science fiction slash horror film suspense thing. Anyway, if you like that kind of stuff, it'll 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 certainly scratch your itch. It's not the best I've ever seen, but I was I was pleasantly impressed by what they did with the uh, with the budget. Uh, also on our little genre tack here, the Lazarus Effect. Uh, this is from the people who previously did uh, Insidious and Paranormal Activity. I'm unfortunately going to have to talk about a Paranormal Activity film on my next film week. Not looking forward to it. Uh, but anyway, the uh, the Lazarus effect is uh, gosh, Mark Duplass just gets he's in everything. How I does, like him. It, I, I like the Duplass. Part. How does he? He must have like he he must have the secret of working thirty seven hours a day. I don't yes, know where he, he finds the extra time. It's very strange. Anyway, he so likes Mar- you. So Mark Duplass and Olivia Wilde are uh, this couple who are trying to resurrect human beings. They're trying to you know do the Frankenstein deal. 
and uh, naturally everything succeeds and uh, there are no problems and uh, they live happily ever after. It's the strangest horror film I've ever seen. Nothing goes wrong. Isn't that interesting? No. Uh, it's not really what happens. So as, as you might imagine, things always go wrong and, uh, you know, it's Frankenstein. It's a whole Frankenstein deal. Um, That's Frankenstein. Thank you. An almost successful, disappointing, only that it doesn't sort of close the deal as well as it should, is this movie Time Lapse. Um, Time travel movies are always going to have a certain problem, and they always run into paradoxes. This one tries to evade the paradox by sort of inventing uh, some interesting twists. It's essentially about three people who discover that the guy who lives across the way is gone, but that he's been taking photographs of them with this giant Polaroid contraption that takes photographs of the future. So they go over and find out what they see, and they're like photographs on the wall, and they find out what's going to happen by looking at the photographs, which, of course, generates all kinds of paranoia when they start seeing themselves doing things to each other that look like betrayal and, and yada, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it, it, as, as easy as it might sound like for that idea to, to run away from itself, they, it, they really keep it pretty contained and, and, and interesting. Uh, the, uh, the director is Bradley King, and he also wrote it with uh, B.P. Cooper. And they, I think they have a real future. This, I mean, the whole thing is just... Essentially, these three actors, with a couple of other actors at a certain point, you know, uh, who just kind of pop in um, to, you know, heighten the tension. But it's pretty much just, uh, you know, a handful of actors in a couple of rooms. And yet it's very suspenseful. It never feels all that claustrophobic. I will say this. Ultimately, it turns into Shallow Grave. And Shallow Grave winds up being a better movie. But uh, Time Lapse, uh, good-looking film on Blu-ray, not a bad indie, doesn't close the deal, but worth checking out. Wait, what's not worth checking out is Chappie, the latest nail in the coffin of director Neil Blomkamp. Oh, man, what's wrong with him? I tell you, it's District 9. We were all over it. Oh, my God, this guy's in the visionary. It's, it's unbelievable. And you know what? He's just falling off the map. Chappie uh, is basically Short Circuit and RoboCop put together. In the near future way, mm. there's, uh, there's robot police. No. And the people don't like robot no. police, Wade. So what they do is they kidnap one of the robot <sighs> police people, robot ro- police robot robots, and they reprogram it, Wade. Oh, no. So it has humanity. It can think, Wade. No. It's a robot who can think. No. And that robot's name? Steve. No. Chappie. This is just rubbish. No. I was so... I've seen this all before. It is just clunky and confused and... And I just, again, we've seen it all before, and I just, there's nothing compelling about this. I, it, it feels like a kid's film. That I, I, I don't know why he would do this. I just don't know what he's, I, has he not seen the 75 other movies that hit these same beats? I, I, and then I, normally, look, Sigourney Weaver's in this, yeah. and I'm sure her participation in this film, I'm sure they got to talking around the craft service table <laughs> about Alien. And I'm sure that they started talking about Alien. I'm sure that she was instrumental in getting Neil Blomkamp. Oh, she was mental to the new Alien mm-hmm. film. But I don't want the director of Chappie no. doing the new Alien film. I, I want the director of District Nine, or even the director of Elysium. I'll take the director of Elysium. Let's see. Well, yeah, doing sure. Dis- doing Alien. Let's let's see how it all shakes out. It, it's interesting that that 
this had not even opened when his uh, his involvement in the Alien film was announced, and that uh, I think was sort of a, a way to sort of distract from this film and save his reputation. That is true. Anyway, Chappie, uh, pass. That's a pass. Right. And uh, interesting little film here, Against the Sun, which uh, this is one of those movies that, you know, 15, 20 years ago would probably have uh, gotten a theatrical release. Uh, loosely based on the true story from 1942, where a trio of airmen all go missing mysteriously um, somewhere over the, uh, over the uh, South Pacific. And uh, th- this is basically their survival story. It's that piece of uh, Angelina Jolie's film, um, uh, Unbroken, sort of blown up to uh, feature length. Uh, done generally well. Um, it's a little overlong. It's about 100 minutes, and it really doesn't justify more than about 85. But uh, some decent effects here, some good direction from Brian Falk, who I think has a, has a, has a future to do some interesting things. And uh, it's not bad. For a movie that with, with limited resources, they really made the most of it. And uh, another, another interesting little indie. So well done there. Uh, Kristen Stewart stars in Camp X-Ray. Camp X-Ray is a, a topical drama. She plays a uh, young woman who's uh, she's a guard in Guantanamo Bay. She was lived in a small town, wanted to make a difference, winds up in Guantanamo Bay, and there's, of course, jihadists everywhere, and the members of her squad don't respect her, at least initially. So what's good about the movie is that um, it does give you a sense of what it's like to be a woman in the U.S. military, and this de- that's, definitely, that's definitely a valid angle to take. Um... And Kristen Stewart is kind of the best thing about the movie. Uh, some of the um, some of the interrogation scenes are pretty thoughtful, and they're not politicized. It simply is what it's like to be in Guantanamo Bay or be a woman in the, in the military. So I kind of like that. Um, so really, it's an actor's piece more than it is anything else. So Camp X-Ray, if you're a big uh, Kristen Stewart fan, movie from Twilight, I would uh, give this one a uh, give this one a flyer. And then lastly, before we get into our box box, uh, Michael no. Michael Douglas is showing up in straight-to-video stuff. That tells you what era we have gone to now. Um, Ronnie Cox in this as well. You know, Ronnie Cox, man, he was such a fixture in the 80s, wasn't he? Ronnie Cox? Yeah. He was 70s the, he, and 80s? He was the captain in, uh, in, in Star Trek The Next Generation, Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and 2. Yeah, I'm glad and you also, were. Uh, glad and also, he was in that. Deliverance. Uh, yes, true. He was. He sure was. Brilliant. He, he, 70s and 80s. He dislocated his own shoulder for the scene where, where he dies That's and right. floats down the river. He Thank told you. John Borm, he's like, you know what? I can dislocate my shoulder. Can we use that? Oh, he really did dislocate his shoulder. Yeah, because yeah, he, 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 like, yeah. he can do It's like he's double jointed or something. Yeah. And so he actually yeah. did that. Yep. Pretty great. I hope, we did, I hope we didn't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen Deliverance. That's what I was thinking. By the way, uh, in, in, to not, not to further spoil it, but Ned Beatty, he squeals like a piggy. Oh, I know. He does. Squeals like a piggy. Ned Beatty's the best. And can you imagine make, shooting that scene? It's oh. just, it's just humiliating. Well, Ned Beatty yeah. claims that the guy who played the redneck yeah. got into that a little <laughs> too much. And Ned Beatty was terrified by that guy. And that guy, because he wasn't like a, he wasn't no, like a, a actor. seasoned actor. No. He's, he was a, just, he's a real Appalachian hillbilly. And so he, that guy got into that crap, and he scared <laughs> the hell out of Ned Beatty. He was like... That was some edgy stuff going on there. Uh, that's why the scene's so good. Anyway, uh, no, Michael Douglas. Uh, this is an okay film. It's an okay kind of, you know, action-y drama deal. Um, uh, Michael Douglas is the only 
really kind of A-list thing about this. No offense to Ronnie Cox. Uh, no, he's uh, he's a he's a big game hunter, and he uh, hires this young guy to played by Jeremy Irvine to uh, kind of take him on a hunting tour in the Mojave. And uh, you know, you're in the Mojave. You're far from civilization, and uh, you know, naturally things are things go wrong. And even being a big game hunter, can you handle it when everything goes haywire and you're far from civilization? And uh, suddenly you begin to realize that, dun 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 dun, uh, the hunter is the hunted, and all that kind of all those kinds of uh, cliches. I mean, it's fine. Um, there's a commentary on here uh, with the, with Michael Douglas, who also produced the film along with the director and uh, another one of the producers, and it's it's fine. I mean, uh, you know, I I just I hate seeing Michael Douglas uh, sort of wind up doing stuff like this. He should be doing better movies. Still, he's a better producer. He's a better actor. So. Hopefully this Michael is Michael Douglas a, is an Ant-Man. He's what? He's an Ant-Man. I know, but he's not the star of Ant-Man. He's like the original Hank Pym who kind of hands the baton off. I and love that's, Michael Douglas. That's like that's like a glorified cameo. I, I love mean, Michael I guarantee Douglas. you he's not going to be in much of that movie. He'll be he'll be like in the first, you know, 10 minutes and then he might show up in a flashback sequence somewhere halfway through or near the end, but I mean he probably worked on that movie th- for 3 days. I, I guarantee you. I, not having seen it, I guarantee you. All right, Mark, we're going to do a Vox Box. Hi, this is Clark from Boston, and I have a quick question for you. I find the image quality and sound quality of DVDs to be distracting at this point. What do you do with your old DVDs? In a lot of cases, I have digital upgrades or Blu-ray copies, but in all cases, I find myself never rewatching them. When do you get rid of them? And when you do get rid of them, what do you do with them? Thanks so much, and I love your show. Clark Aldrich, thank you very much. Uh, that's interesting. Um, I don't know that I've ever, got, I don't know I've ever gotten rid of a DVD. I'm kind of no. You have not gotten rid of any DVDs. You're, you, look, wait. Let, let me ask you a question. Do you park your car in your garage or out on your driveway? Uh, down the street. Because, why, why is that way? Because every garage on the block is filled with my DVDs. But your garage <laughs> is filled with DVDs. It's pretty much, yeah. Um, no, no, I, you know, he, first of all, to to the first part of his question, um, I I don't find a, a lot of the stuff that that you and I have on DVD is not acceptably available on on Blu-ray, and a lot of it that is on Blu-ray actually still looks better on DVD. Once upon a time in the West, if you've seen the Blu-ray, it's kind of an abortion. Uh, the DVD of Once Upon a Time in the West is 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 the correct color timing. It looks correct. They they screwed it up on the Blu-ray. So, um, and and also, I, you know, I use an upconverting player. I think you you use an upconverter as well. So it uh, if you're looking at it on a high def television, an upconverting Blu-ray player, a good one like an Oppo or a, or a, or a Marantz is going to give you a really, really good-looking picture, uh, especially if you have a large screen and you sit a decent distance from it. It's not going to be that distracting. Um, the, you know, the, I, I, don't know, I don't know that I find the audio that, that distracting. There are older DVDs that really bug me because they're badly mastered and because even up-converted and especially up-converted, you start to see all kinds of artifacts and noise and pixelation. and uh, you know, They sort of never imagined that anybody would look at it on anything larger than a 27-inch screen. Uh, you know, cathode ray tube screen. But those are few and far between. 
the stuff that we get rid of, what do we do with it, Mark? We take it to Amoeba and we see if they want to throw us a few shekels? That's true. <laughs> but here's the thing, though. Like when, when, during the DVD era, I would just collect as many DVDs as I could. Yeah. So I had some impressive-looking collection of like yeah. thousands of DVDs. Yeah. Now that we're on Blu-ray, which might be the last stop on the package mm. media train, although now there's the 4K coming. Yeah. Now I, I pretty much have a Blu-ray collection that I can honestly say – is every Blu-ray I have is a movie that I love and want to keep. Yep. Because they're my either they're my personal favorite films or they're historically important. Yeah, I agree. I still have a couple hundred DVDs that of films that are, are are important or favorites that are not on Blu-ray. I still do have that. Yeah. Um, you know, I had the Preston Sturgis box set of all of his films, but it's only on DVD, and I can't imagine it ever being on Blu-ray. Yeah. So I, that like that I keep, and and there are you know yeah so I I agree yeah I agree it's uh but I I you know I am gonna have to have a big culling session later in the year because it it's true I was talking to Stefan Hammond who we've interviewed on this show who's in Hong Kong the uh, our, our resident Hong Kong film expert and Stefan's been culling his collection he just says look there's only so much time left in life and you have a job and you have family and you have holidays and things and you want you don't want you know, you have you have more hours on disc than you have hours left in your life. You're never going to watch it all, and that's true. So I, I just figure, you know what? The most of the stuff I'm going to watch again, I'm going to want to show my daughter. So I'm going to hang on to the stuff that I really love. By the way, all that is a bunch of crap because it you is. have thousands and thousands upon no, thousands right. upon right. thousands of DVDs you're right. you're that right. you would not literally. It could be like the worst movie you've ever seen in it's your true. entire life that you don't even want to watch, and yep. you will you would not. You would not even lend it to me. I, it's true. I, I I was sitting there holding eye for an eye the other day, and I just thought, this movie's terrible, but I, it's got Christopher Lee in it, and he just died, and I feel like I need to honor him by holding on to this horrible Chuck Norris movie. It's not nearly as good as I thought it was. That's right. Yeah, it's true. Welcome to Wade. Yeah, I'm an addict. I, I'm, I'm 12 step. Here I come. I don't think they have any 12 steps. Anyway. All right, that's it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. See y'all.